just past 7 o'clock, and we are super excited for tonight's show. It's time for Ira on Sports, 95.9, the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and this is going to be a fun one, Ira. Um, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. World Series is almost wrapped up. We're learning just who is who in football. You know, the first couple of weeks... It's kind of like you're feeling these teams out. I think we have a really good grasp of who's actually a contender and who is just a pretender. So this is a really exciting. And we've got a great guest. It's Andrew Catalan. He's been on the show before. A- Andrew's great. Tell us a little bit about him if we're not familiar. He's the play-by-play uh, for CBS for the NFL football. I think yep. they play like five or six NFL teams. And he's on one of the teams where he did broadcast the game. We, you must have heard him in the Jets-Dolphins game down here because he did that game. But uh, he's covered, you know, when he, we're going to ask him some questions about what he does to get prepared for the games. But he goes and interviews the players. He just did with the Dolphins. So we get, we're going to get some information on Brian Flores, on mm-hmm. Tua, and Fitzpatrick and everything. So I'm excited to have him on. And he also does the Masters, so we might ask him a golf question at the end. And he's been, um, you know, everyone's kind of uh, loving Justin Herbert. And he's got to see him, so it'll be good to get This past week, he was yeah. at Jacksonville, uh, the Chargers. Yeah, so we'll get to, um, you know, get to pick his brain on that a little bit. So I'm really excited to have Andrew Catalan join us at 7.30. So Ira, I've been a really big baseball fan for 30 plus years. And I don't know what it is about this World Series, but I'm loving it more than usual. Maybe because we were starved for baseball for so long. But this World Series has just been great so far. It's been great. The games are really, really long, and that's what baseball <laughs> is. And people ask, why is it so long? It's because you're using each team is not is using like seven or eight pitchers a game, and you're just and even though you have a three batter minimum, but you're just making the pitching changes. People come out, and that's what slows the, down the game. But look, uh, the Dodgers, I feel, are far superior to the Rays. Watching them play, I still am convinced of that. But when you have a manager like Dave Roberts, it just like brings everything back because it seems like cash uh, for the Rays. If you gave him the Dodgers, the series have been over. We've been finished. I, I just don't get Dave Roberts at all. His decisions make no sense whatsoever. I'm sure some of them get right. But, oh, my gosh, with all the talent the Dodgers have and all the experience they have from hitting and pitching, this should not even be – these games should not even be close. And it's just like one questionable move after another. And clearly that game four, what an ending for a game. Yeah. But it really didn't even have to get to that. I mean, I think Dave Roberts is the handicap for the team. I think they should they should almost put Dave Roberts, if they locked him in the restroom, the Dodgers would end up winning every game like 7-1. <laughs> it's, I think one of the things is, Ira, is that a lot of teams are trying to outray the Rays. And we saw what happened with the Yankees. The Yankees tried to be the Rays, and it cost them the series. And I think maybe that that's what Dave Roberts is doing now. He's, he's in his own head. And like you said, <laughs> how often is it that the, the coach is the one holding the team back? That's really not what they're there for. It's unbelievable. I mean, the Dodgers, um, the history, the eight years, they've been first place for eight straight years. In 2013, uh, since 2013, 2013, they lost to NLCS to the Cards. 2014 and 15, they lost in the playoffs. And then Don Mattingly was fired. Yeah. So we know Tom Maggie down here. And then, but 2016, they lose the World Series in seven games to Houston, which, of course, their claim were cheated. And then 2017, they lost in five games to Boston. Last year, they lost to the Nationals in that crazy game five. That was a nuts game. But then they, and now they're back in this. So this is their chance. And you have all these players that have all this experience. And they finally have the pitching, this deep pitching staff with relievers. But he's so afraid to have any of his pitchers pitch besides uh, Bueller and Kershaw. <laughs> Everyone else has to be an opener, has to move. Yeah. And you 
make all these moves. I just think it just is so dangerous for what he's trying to do with these teams. But, you know, the Dodgers are up three games. For people that aren't following this, the Dodgers are up 3-2. You think I'm, they've lost. They're up 3-2. They need to win one game either on Tuesday or Wednesday in their World Series champs. And But I'm not putting this uh, just to bed yet, especially with some of the um, issues we've seen so far from the, uh, Roberts and the Dodgers. I think that they still got a good chance. Plus 425 in Vegas. I think that's not a bad uh, bet. So let's talk about how we got here. Uh, last time we spoke, we were going, going into game three. Uh, game one, and I, I was super excited about this. And I, like I said, each game's gotten better and better so far. I well, it was Kershaw versus Glass now, and we've known Kershaw's history that he's one of the greatest regular season players of all time, uh, pitchers of all time. But in the postseason, he has 11 for 12 with a 431 ERA. And in the five World Series appearances, he's 5 540 ERA, which yeah. is horrendous. How about this? The smallest crowd for the World Series, because they have the reduced crowds, 12,000 since 1909 between the Tigers and Pirates with <laughs> Honus Wagner and Ty Cobb. But uh, the game, you know, they uh, Glasnow and Kershaw pitched great the first bunch of, first three innings. They each gave up a hit and struck out four people. But in the bottom of the, the fourth, Bellinger, who you're waiting for Bellinger, you know, had the great home run in the, AL, the NLCS, uh, had a home run and drove off Muncie to drive in Muncie, so they went up 2 nothing. And then in the uh, – and Kiermaier, I'm telling you, Kiermaier comes for the Rays. It's just like every inning he gets up, he gets on, and then he just hits these home runs yeah. out of nowhere. And he's not a home run guy. And he's not a home run guy. <laughs> it's like I would make him – if they come back and win, I'd make him the MVP because it seems like whenever they need – like even the ninth innings, every ninth inning, he's been the one who's got that hit in the ninth yeah. inning. He's always leading off somehow and getting that hit. So he hit a home run to make it 2-1. But the bottom of the fifth was the key. That's when Betts walked, Seager walked. Now, Glassdown pitched a great game, but he had Six walks. So when you have six walks, that's a mess. But Betts had two steals that inning. And I saw this stat, too. He was the first player since Babe Ruth in a World Series to walk and steal two base bases in the same inning. Crazy. Isn't, I, I feel like Vince Coleman had done that for Cardinals or something like that. But uh, – and then – and then uh, then Muncy had a hard hit to first, and he went and bet scored. That was three to one. And then Will Smith had a single drove in Seeger. And uh, it was actually another thing about that. And they kept stealing the bases. I mean, the Dodgers now, people don't steal bases. Since 1912, the Dodgers were the last time the Giants scored, had three stolen bases in one inning, and the Dodgers stole three bases in an inning. So that was, but, you know, then they got up to six, you know, six one that inning, and the game for all intents and purposes over. And Kershaw didn't have the pressure on him. Yeah. So he still pitched through the sixth. He has that seven. 35 pitches, but then they took him out. And then later, Dodgers added up. Uh, Betts had a home run, made it 7-1. Turner drove a run in the end. But, uh, you know, it was for all the talk about Kershaw, failures in the postseason, he really had a semi-easy game. to pitch like four innings, got that big lead, and then just, you know, finished it off. You know, and you could tell, um, you know, during the game, after he was pulled out of the game the next day, that this was like a big confidence builder for him. Because if he had gone out and got shellacked again... Who knows what would have happened in this series. It might have been over already. Um, so let's go to game two. And game two, then the, this is one where I'm like, you know what? You win game two. You have Bueller going to three, game three. I felt like Dodgers, this series, this is one of the game two. They could have ended the series. But, of course, Dave Roberts cannot end a series. He just could not. <laughs> I mean, it was just they, they used Gosselin as an opener against Snell. And Snell really has been a, not that elite pitcher that he had been like two years ago or even last year. Yeah. And, and I felt like the Dodgers would be able to hit him. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- this is, you know, the 
the Rays went five consecutive games without scoring four runs in four games. They went 10 consecutive games hitting 230 or lower, and then ended up getting 10 hits out of eight players because of the Dodgers relief core, which was just a mess in terms of how it was working. I mean, I mean to start the game, Brandon Lau, who hadn't done anything, hits a home run for Tampa. And then uh, and then in the top of the top of the fourth, they bring in May, comes in, the guy with the red hair and everything. <laughs> and then they drove in another run, so makes it 3 nothing. And Snell ended up being pitching a no-hitter uh, – you know, f- through four innings with eight strikeouts. And then uh, Lowe hit another two-run home run, make it 5 nothing. So it was like, at that situation, it was like, you know, just the Dodgers got so far down. And I got to see, you know, the Dodgers, you know we're going to come back. Will Smith had a home run. Seager had a home run. But just not enough to, to come back and, you know, to take the lead, you know, from 6-4 to four that they ended up. But um, they used Snell and five other pitchers, and, and the Rays ended up winning. But I just felt like, boy, that game they just gave away. And just you don't want to look a game for the Dodgers and, like, get down 4 nothing fast. Yeah, well, I mean, especially in these, um, you know, in these games like this, World Series games, it's really important to not make those mistakes. And sometimes, you know, the littlest misstep, it's tough when you're playing baseball and you're down a couple of runs and you just can't get anything going. Um, game three was another really good one. Well, this is what we're going to have. This is the rematch of we're going to see tomorrow yeah. uh, what happened is game three is Bueller versus against Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton, one of the biggest game pitchers. He's won three game sevens. Um, I saw I saw Morton lose a game he lost a playoff game against the Cardinals against the Pirates. He, he pitched for was pitching for the Pirates that game. Yeah. And Cole, they pitched Cole, and he couldn't pitch in that game. And, and it was he pitched ter- pitched terrible, and and, uh, and they, they lost to the Cardinals. So it was actually at one of his big time games. Who would have remembered at that time that he would then be such a big time pitcher? But uh, Walker Bueller was just lights lights out this game. I mean, he was just and there the Dodgers did to the Rays. What the the, the the previous game? Turner, Justin Turner had that home run, just leadoff home run when the game started, and then uh, Seager was hit by a pitch. Turner fouled off a bunch of pitches, and Muncie drove them all in, made that three nothing, and uh, and then finally, you know, there was a point where Betts had a big single, drove in a couple of runs. Five nothing, but it was like one of those things where Bueller pitched six innings, three hits, one run, ten strikeouts, just a perfect type of game. Yeah, this was a good one, and you know we been seeing the back and forth and back and forth and um, it was good to see the Dodgers pull this one out, put the pressure back on the Rays. I didn't like though that Jansen was in the ninth. Again, I don't trust him at all. A a Rosarina, he's up there and it's in the ninth inning and it's like, you know what? Why? He hadn't been playing well in the World Series. Like, don't get him hot Mm -hmm. and he hits a home run, just a giveaway home run but that was like, you don't do that. I mean, I just, I don't understand. A Rosarina is this player that is super hot. A year from now, he might not be a good player in the league. Three years, he might be out of the league. But right now, in this month of where we are, October, October 2020, he's the hottest player, but he's Barry Bonds. Yeah. So treat him like Barry Bonds. Don't treat him like another player. And I just, like in the ninth inning, like Jansen should have just pitched around him, put him on, and just got and just got someone else out. But instead, he hits a home run, gets confidence, I just, and then it hurts Jansen's confidence. So I just a mess. Well, again, I just don't understand what the Dodgers are doing. Yeah, there's really not, like, and ever a time I feel comfortable pitching to that guy right now. He's just lights out. And like you said, he might not be around in three years, but for now, you got to respect him. It's 7-Eleven. You're listening to Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. We'll have Andrew Catalan of CBS join us at 7.30. He's going to be great. So, Ira, game four. Jeff Passan, um, you know, big baseball columnist for ESPN, he said... This was probably the greatest World Series game of all time. <laughs> and it might have been. It was not the, it was not the greatest World Series game know, of all time. It was like a crazy game. But I would not say it's the greatest, I mean, a game, World Series. Because the Pirates all, weren't involved? Well, no. The Pirates <laughs> weren't involved. 19, but I think the fact that I think you would have a game that had so many mistakes. Like, I can't think of a game with mistakes. As, but, I mean, it, certainly it's not. 
uh, going to rank up there with the Mets and Red Sox. I mean, that certainly was the game with the Bill Buckner play, stuff mm-hmm. like that, which I think is greater than this. And, and also, it wasn't, didn't decide anything. It's a game four, so you can't call it the greatest World <laughs> Series game of all time. But it was, it was a very exciting game, the fact that they kept one team took the lead, the next inning, someone else took the lead, one team took the lead, the next inning. It was, I think it was seven half innings, a team took, retook the lead. And that was like unheard of. It was like a, almost like an NBA basketball game. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened here? I mean, <laughs> well, it, it, there was, it was a little bit of slop. It's still fun to watch. But Turner, Turner again, another leadoff home run. I mean, it says Dustin Turner is, it came to play. And then Corey Seager had a home run to make it 2-0. So you're like, okay, here's another game. They're going to be set. You know, the, it, it was one of those games where Yarbrough's against Urias, Urias, who for the Dodgers. And But Urias wasn't, I mean, at first he was sharp, and then he just wasn't as good as he was supposed to be. But then in the, uh, then they, but they took Urias out, and they brought in in May. And that's when a res arena again hits a home run so Shocker, here yeah i mean it's, it makes it 2-1 and uh and then renfro hit another home, uh, you no, i'm sorry urias stayed in the whole time game because then then renfro hit a home run off mm-hmm. him again to make that 2-2 uh and that's the one thing that the rays do that is so different when you watch baseball like you know, people say who's the middle in relievers who's the closers who's this they use everybody there i think that six players have three saves on the team yeah. it doesn't matter like you don't come to your team and say i'm a closer because castillo who's technically their closer seems to always come in like in the fifth or sixth <laughs> inning for those games um and then uh and then they, they were able in the top of the seventh uh, Seeger and Turner doubled again. Bellinger walked, and Peterson had that key hit, and that gave the Dodgers that six-five lead at the top of the seventh. Uh, but then the bottom of the seventh, uh, who hits a home run? Kiermaier again, like again, Bias is in the game. I mean, it's like Kiermaier is up every time, and you don't even hear the name Kiermaier. And it's like, boy, home run. So now it's six-six, and it was like that was the seven innings without you know seven half innings without someone scoring, and then in the top of the eighth. Uh, Taylor doubled. Seager singled him, made it 8-7. So it was seven runs. This was their seventh run in the game with two outs. Now, remember something about this game. Bellinger, who is considered the greatest center fielder in baseball right now because they have bats in right field and they have Bellinger in center field. So you have this great outfield. He said his back hurt and he didn't feel like playing center field for the game. <laughs> now, this is World Series game four and you're still hitting and your back hurts. A little weird. I, yeah, I, I thought so. That was crazy. But so he wasn't in the game, which didn't matter. But then in the eighth inning, like you're wondering, well, when are you, you know, then you should, you know, when are you, you know, when are you going to potentially bring him in? And, uh, you know, now you're up top of the eighth. You just took the eighth elite, eight, seven. At that point for the bottom of the eighth and the bottom of the ninth, I would have put Bellinger in the game. Like he's, he's in the game as a DH. They would have lost the, I understand if you lose the DH, but the fact is move him to center because you want to have your best outfield. You have the one run lead. But in the ninth, they bring in, this is, a total nightmare <laughs> of the ninth, like everything. So Jansen comes in. You're up 8-7. Jansen comes in. Tosugo strikes out. Then Kiermeyer again, just comes up Crazy. with a single. <laughs> Wendell lines out. So now there's two outs. Two outs. You're, you're one with game. You're one out away from going up uh, 3-1. And Azareno's up. So I'm like, walk him. Walk him. Because the, the way call. the Rays had moved their lineup, Brett Phillips... Brett Phillips has not had a hit in a month. In a month, <laughs> he's a 200 hitter. He's had 10 hits all he's 10 hits all year. Like Brett Phillips is there somehow behind his arena because they were moving it around how the positioning. So they got caught. They had nobody off the bench. It was the perfect thing. So Azarena's up there. And I'm like, walk Azarena. Just walk him. He's the hottest player in the world. If it, just put him on and put men on first and second, two outs. But instead, they try to pitch around him and like. But they make Jansen 
could work. People say, well, they walked him anyway. But he used seven pitches. He fouled off a couple of those pitches. Like, don't do anything. I just It just tired Jansen out. And I knew that he's going to be, like, tired, worn out. He's sweating. He's tired. It's, I just stop doing that. So what does Phillips do? He comes up there. Of course, he hits, uh, he hits a flare out to right field. Mm. And then... Taylor, well, Taylor is in the center fielder, gets it. So he fumbles the flare. That wasn't even that type of hard a hit. He fumbles it, and they're running around first base. So Azarena is running around third base. So Kiermaier is going to score on the hit. So now we got a tie game. Worst case scenario, tie game, go to extra innings, call it a day. Mm-hmm. But Azarena somehow, was, now he is running terribly around third base. So he runs around third base, and he trips and falls and stumbles <laughs> on the ground. And he's landing on his rear end, like sitting there in the rear end. But what does Muncie do? Muncie... <laughs> Gets the cutoff and he throws it to throws a bad throw to Will Smith back in the thing and then Azarino goes and scores and they win the game and it was like that's bad news bears like that is totally <laughs> like I watched all the bad news bears a hundred times I think that happened in one of the bad news bears games like how do you have Taylor Muncie and Will Smith three people that make twenty million dollars a piece. Make, can't even do something little leaguers can play in terms of an easy ball to center field to a cutoff man to catcher and just totally mess up. When Azarena was just sitting on his, he literally was sitting on his rear end between home plate and third base. It, it's crazy the way, the way they worked out. And there is a reason why they have defensive replacements in games. And the fact that, like you said, to, to have kept, um, kept Bellinger out of the game just really didn't make any sense. And then sense. Dave Roberts said, he goes, I was so surprised that it was a walk off. So surprised. Like, how can you be surprised? Like, you're only up a run. Like, it's not like you're up. Like, I don't understand why you're surprised. You have men on first base. Like, he goes, I was surprised I wasn't really prepared for it. What do you prepare for it? You have Jansen on the mound who blows saves all the time. You have a total mess. You've already, I just can't believe you're not prepared for a walk off. Like, what's not to be prepared about? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Almost as bad as Mike McCarthy saying he wasn't watching plays when he told Jerry Jones he was. Um, So now here we are. Game two games apiece. We go into last night, game five, and I knew that this was going to be another good one. It was a great game because it was Cl- Kershaw again. Now, this this is funny. Kershaw did not have the stuff he had in game game one, but he def- definitely, but it, but it was good enough to win. So he got another win for two Dodgers. And uh, first of all, Arez Arena in the first round, uh, first inning, oh, so close to that home run. And I can't believe they don't have a camera that showed because when it went in that, it went in the, by the foul pole. I thought it was a home run, but they didn't even show it. But then Peterson coming in, t- in the top of the second. Boy, Peterson, someone who, Jock Peterson, who does really nothing during the regular season, they Remember, they tried to trade him before the year started, but in the postseason, he gets these big hits—a three-run home run. Uh, go, go, makes it go. You know, or no, another. They scored in the first. That's in Seager, and then and Peterson home run made it three nothing. But then in the bottom of the third, who does again? Kiermaier again <laughs> leads off with a single. Diaz triples, and Azarenka so makes it, uh, and that makes it three two. And then uh, and then Muncie had a home run in the sixth. That home run in the sixth. That was one of the longest home runs. I mean, it was like 500 feet, it seems like. And he had a home run to make it 4-2. And then they finally, I think the weird thing was they took Kershaw. They're up 4-2. And with in the middle of the 16, they take Kershaw out with uh, two outs. May came in the game, got the out. So that could have been a criticism. But I'm telling you... <laughs> I've seen Kershaw blow so many games that I think it's just better just to take him out of the game. Like, I won't criticize Roberts for taking him out at that point, even though people were, were upset about that. But so it's 4-2 in the eighth. In the bottom of the eighth, what happens? Kiermaier, of course, gets on, sure. on the first head. And then they bring Gonzalez in. And, uh, and as a, but the key, they got Azareno up. He, he fit the first pitch. I mean, here's, a, here's their chance where they're going to blow the game. And Azarino, Azarino, Gonzalez gets Azareno up on a fly out, and then Brandon Lowe popped up. That was really like, you're waiting for the Rays to make that comeback. And then the ninth inning, uh, they had tried, like, Trinan was in the game. They didn't have Jansen do the close. Yeah. They're Trinan in the game. And it was like, you know, Margo got that hurt, the, the hit, the leadoff hit. But then three straight outs, Meadows, Wendell, and Adams all got out. So 
So, you know, a simple game. It was actually a faster game. It was easier to watch. But it was a good win for the Dodgers. And certainly, I think if the Dodgers would have lost that, it would have been all over. Because I think they, with the momentum, they would have never been able to come back. Now they have that 3-2 lead. Uh, they got Bueller going, their best pitcher. Um, but I do not put, as you said, anything by the Rays. Like, I mean, anything by yeah. the Dodgers. They could blow everything. Like, they are just <laughs> a mess. And they have so talented. Like, I love their team with Seager. Like, you wonder who's going to be the MVP from Seager, Bellinger, Smith, Muncie. Turner, all these guys are big time hitters. They're in the kid in the clutch. They come. They have two out, two hit outs. They have great bullpen. I mean, how can Roberts just not? This is a mess. It is, and like you said, it's going to be tough to pick an MVP if the Dodgers do win this because they've got so many guys uh, playing so good. Seven twenty one. Iron Sports. Andrew Catalan of CBS joining us in just about nine minutes. So Ira, let's go to football and Monday night football tonight. We're going to see the five and one Bears take on the four and two Rams. And looking at these teams, I don't think either one is as good as their records. So it should be interesting to see what happens when they face off tonight. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be – they played last year, and it was uh, on Monday night, and the Rams won 17-7. And that was when Aaron Donald had two sacks and four QB hits on Trubolitsky. It was just the, the Rams' defense. That was when the Rams' defense was was awesome then at that time. And they collectively, now they played two games. last two games, the Bears and Rams have combined for nine interceptions, four fumbles, 20 punts, and only four touchdowns. So bet the under, of course, in this game. And uh, so it'll be – but you got Aaron Donald for the Rams versus Khalil Mack for – the Bears. You got two of the best players, two defensive linemen in football. And but you know, look, the Rams have not had that explosive offense. And I'm going against Robert Woods today, tonight in fantasy. So I don't hope he goes off. But between Goff, Cup, and Woods, and they got rid of Gurley, but they just haven't had that that explosive offense that you expect. But yeah. but uh, in terms of and they got blown out last week by San Francisco. So the question is, like you know, what what Ram teams is, is going to show up for this game? Uh, and the Bears are five and one. They beat the Lions, the Giants, Falcons, and the Buccaneers in that crazy game. And Nick Foles is on fire mm-hmm. so i don't know i i like the bears in this game i like i know the rams are giving up six points i sort of i feel i'm feeling the the bears a little bit trying to get their defense going and i'm just not sold on golf and i'm not sold on the rams no like like you said i i think both teams have some chinks in the armor and they're playing a little bit over their heads but we'll have to see what happens tonight on monday night football um so i there's what three uh three constants in life death taxes and deontay johnson injured and may probably not returning it just seems like every week this guy he had what, 15 targets yesterday for the Steelers? He just can't stay on the field. I feel like he could be a superstar if he could just get that right. But uh, So this game yesterday, Ira, I happened to be away from my house, and so I didn't have Red Zone Channel, and this was the game that was on TV. And, boy, they couldn't have picked a better one because what a game between the Steelers and the Titans. Well, the Steelers, for the first time since 1978, when they, of course, won their third Super Bowl, um, they are 6-0. and and it was just <laughs> that first part of the game was absolute. They looked like the greatest offense ever because Ben, as I, we talked about before, he just throws it to everybody. He was throwing it to your guy, DeAndre Johnson, and made some one play after another. Um, and seven in the first possession, seven receivers touched the ball, uh, and they had a ten minute drive. And they were ten for twelve. He was, ben was ten for twelve on the drive. The Steelers were up ten nothing in the first half and uh, first quarter. The, how about this? They had time of possession fourteen minutes to one minute. They had, they ran twenty two plays, and the Titans only ran three plays, and they outgained them hundred and thirty to one in that in the first quarter. And you're like, wow, they're going, they're going crazy. They're gonna. Oh, they ended up being fourteen uh, nothing. Sorry. And Ben with a fourteen point lead is ninety seven one and one. So you're like, how in the world are they going to blow this game? But it was like one of those things. And then. What I really like was T.J. Watt at the end of the half. 
it was like the Titans just did not look like they could do anything. Yeah, Every time Henry got the ball, T.J. Watt, and now his brother J.J. is the more famous Watt, but like two plays in a row, T.J. Watt would just run from the outside and just tackle Henry. Like, first of all, it's one thing to have the speed to get around the corner to get it, but then as you're going on a turn to actually tackle someone like Henry, who seems like it takes five people to tackle, just shows you why T.J. Watt could be maybe defensive player, player of the year. That was, that was tremendous. But, you know, at halftime, the Steelers are up 24-7. They outgained him 228 to 83 and you're like the game is over Steelers are you know it's it's over but in the second half wow I mean it's like the Steelers just I think just like you know got overconfident or something because the the Titans had some nice nice things Ben started through another interception that was bad and and then AJ Brown had a 70 yard touchdown pass uh but in the fourth quarter the Steelers defense started falling totally apart. Henry was just barreling through them, going through and scoring, and he scored a touchdown. It was like they kept handing the ball to him, and Steelers couldn't stop him. He, I think he had 65 yards on a drive, and uh, so he scored a touchdown, made it 27-24. But the Steelers then had a drive exit. It's 27-24. Steelers come back. They th- work it down, and Ben threw it right to Juju in the end zone, and he had the ball, and it, and he, and he lost, and it went up, and then he went and intercepted yeah. the ball. It was like the craziest thing where he had it, and then it was like, should have been a touchdown, and then just didn't go back. And then the the uh, Titans had their chance. They drove all the way down there. And Gaskowski, who has missed one big kick after another, you know, rough year, <laughs> rough year, missed a forty six yard field goal to tie it to send it overtime. So the Steelers have it, a really good win over a team. And it's like one of those games where you know two undefeated teams playing. And if the Steelers tie, remember there's only one team gets the bye. If the Steelers are tied, now you think it's going to be with the Chiefs, but if they're tied with the Titans, that's going to be the tiebreaker. So it was a humongous win for the Steelers. Uh, Juju had nine, you know, for the first part of the season, they're not throwing to him. He had nine catches, 85 yards. DeAndre Johnson, nine catches for 80. Ebron got involved six for 50. And Claypool, who I was talking about, didn't really do that yeah. much. But what I like what the Steelers are doing, if you watch them really in detail, Juju blocks, Claypool blocks, Ebron blocks. Like, they all do those things. They call them Heinz Ward because I think when you have your wide receivers that are blocking and it helps the running game. It seems like this team is just perfectly suited. I'm really pumped for the Steelers. Great defense. They got a little tired at the end of the game, and uh, I love how the offense is doing. Yeah, and Tennessee's no slouch either. You know, to, right. the fact that they were beating them up, uh, you know, pretty good, and then you know, almost lost or you know, almost allowed a comeback goes to show that Tennessee's, you know, Tennessee's going to be a fighter um, in the AFC come the end of the year as well. Um, so we got to see a great game at one o'clock, and then man, Seattle and <laughs> Seattle and Arizona did not disappoint last. Well, night. I was I had the game on, and I was watching the World Series. So I was like, what, one, what eye is like sort of watching because out of my <laughs> laptop, I'm watching that. And then at one point, I think it was the end of the game, the, the, my laptop ran out of juice. And I like forgot that the game was still on because I thought the Cardinals had this, they had like this 10 point lead. They were up 34, 24 with six minutes to go. And then I finally, like the b- football game ended, uh, the baseball game ended. I'm like turning it right. I'm like, wait, wait, there's a football game. What's that score? And then I turn it on. I'm like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> somehow Seattle is, is, uh, is, 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 you know, is, is blowing this game to Arizona. And you know how much I like this game because you have Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray. I've been high on Arizona for so long. I think this team is emerging. And it's just amazing in terms of how there was a play that I missed when I watched it. So you can see the highlights where Russell Wilson threw an interception. Buddy, 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 Baker, uh, uh, Buddy Baker intercepted it. And DK Metcalf uh, caught him, you know, and when he was running down, I guess, and it was running, they timed it. 
Metcalf was running at 22 miles an hour, and Baker ran at 21 miles an hour to, t- to tackle him on an interception uh, to stop for a touchdown. Uh, but it was just like one of those weird games where then the Cardinals at the end of the game tied at 34-34. And then in overtime, you're like, okay, it's overtime. Oh, that's Russell Wilson's time. That's not going to happen. But, you know, they forced him to punt on the first possession. And then Arizona dri- drove down, and they, they missed a field goal. So now Arizona misses their field goal. And then, then you're like, okay, Seattle has their second chance. So you have, now you're giving Seattle two times. Russell Wilson, it's never going to happen. And uh, they threw a touchdown pass to, D- to D- DJ Metcalf, but he – it was a motion penalty. So they're celebrating motion penalty. So then Wilson got intercepted. We talked about Isaiah Simmons from Clemens, Clemson, how much we love him. What a play. He made his <laughs> interception on Wilson. And then, uh, then they go down there and, uh, and, and, and Cardinals win and kicked a field goal and won. Huge upset. Seattle, of course, was undefeated going into the game. And a big win for Arizona Cardinals and a team that I think is a team that could make the Super Bowl some year. Maybe not this year, but just an emerging young team. And it was great on national television that people could see how good they are. And, yeah, if you haven't seen the DK Met catch up to uh, Buda Baker on that interception. It might be the most impressive non-catch-run like catch or run play you'll ever see in football. So go ahead and Google that one, Ira, because I was shocked when I saw that much ground um, he made up. Very impressive stuff uh, from the young wide receiver. Let's, uh, just before we got about a minute or two till we get to Andrew Catalan, the Browns played Cincinnati, and I got to tell you, it's, you know, Cleveland won, but they didn't look very good. And Cincinnati, Joe Burrow, I think they got something here, Ira. I'm excited for his future. Well, it was like the first game in, in, in fans in Cincinnati. There were 10,000 at the game. It was the battle of like the, of the two fir- first round, the number one pit, number one picks, Mayfield and Bur- Burrow. And Mixon was out of the game for the Bengals. So you're thinking, wow, the Bengals are going to have trouble in this game. But the f- start of the game was a disaster for the Browns. Uh, Baker Mayfield threw an interception on the second pass. Um, and on the return on the interception, Odo Beckham's trying to attack. Uh, the, the person who accepted the ball, he tore his ACL, so now he's out of the game. And and Mayfield started 0 for 5 with that interception. And at halftime, Burrow was just on fire. 20 for 25, 234 yards a touchdown. And uh, Mayfield was a mess. And it was 17-10 Cincinnati. But in that second half, uh, the Browns scored four straight touchdowns. They were on fire. Mayfield completed 18 straight completions. And uh, it was like one of those games where they each were scoring at the end. And then finally, uh, Mayfield was, you know, had the, had the touchdown at the end. And then Burrow couldn't score. You know, they're leaving the Cincinnati no time to score. They ended up winning the game uh, 37-34. But I thought the, the funny aspect of the game was that after the game, Car- Carlos Dunlap uh, for the Bengals said that uh, he would sell his apartment. You know, he, for, he has a 6,000-square-foot apartment. They asked him what his, com- what his comment on the game was. He said, well, I want to go sell my apartment because um, I just don't want to be here with Cincinnati, which I thought was surprising because Cincinnati has this good young future, but he doesn't like how he's playing. And I just, I've never heard someone as a response say, what's your comment on the game? He goes, I'm selling my apartment. Um, who wants to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to uh, Andrew Catalan of CBS Sports joining us here on Iron Sports. Ira, we've got Andrew on the line. Hi, Andrew. Thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> we are. We are. I'm glad you got some football uh, to talk about. Um, but, you know, before we get into the games, I, you've been on the show a couple times, and I, a lot of my listeners have asked me, they go, what do you do to get prepared for a game? Like, is it like you just show up there the day of or like just, <laughs> you know, in terms of rolling? And I'm like, I think he has to do a lot of preparation. But talk about in terms of what you do uh, when broadcasting these games for CBS uh, every week at a different team, a different site. Uh, exactly what do you do to get ready for these games? Yeah, it's a week-long process. I mean, I start, I've already started, you know, today on my game for Sunday. What I like to do is I like to watch each of the team's prior games. So, 
this week I'm calling the Lions and the Colts in Detroit. So I've already watched the uh, the Lions-Falcons game from yesterday, and then tonight I'll go back and watch the Colts' previous game. And then, you know, all week I build out my, my boards, if you will. I have these big manila folders, and I put every player on there with their stats and any personal information. I read all the newspaper clippings from each city, uh, and we do get to talk to each team. Now, that's a little different this year. Typically in the past, I would go – the teams, uh, the home teams practice on Friday, watch them practice, and then sit and talk with the head coach, the quarterback, and a few others. But now we do everything on Zoom, so I'll meet with each team, uh, but, but unfortunately this year, because of COVID, we do it over Zoom, and then I get into the city of the game on Friday evening. I actually take a COVID test when I arrive, and then uh, you know we're there Friday and Saturday, the game Sunday, and then start it all over on Monday. So it's a pretty involved process, obviously, with 53 players on each team there's there's a lot that you have to know and, and be ready for but um to me getting ready for the game is, is part of the fun just the process of going through tape and and learning the storylines and the players it's uh i enjoy that part of it well talk about a storyline we're down here in west palm beach and very interested in the miami dolphins and they're, they're going to have a nice the start of a story i guess the next week when uh to tagaloa has his first start um but you did the jets dolphins uh, game two weeks ago, I think. I'm not. I think you did that game, and so I you, did. Yes, I did. So you got a chance to uh, talk to Flores. Talk to did you? Did you talk to two at all at that point, or are you just talking to Fitzpatrick for that game? Yeah. So the, before the last game, we we spoke to Flores and Fitzpatrick. Did not talk to Tua, but we talked about Tua with both of them, and also with offensive coordinator Chan Gailey. And all the remarks were glowing. Um, but had no idea that this was coming. I mean, obviously their buy got changed, and I think it, it does make sense in terms of when to do this. But it, but it's a surprise. We saw Fitzpatrick's reaction when it happened, and I think that that's the sentiment that you know they were playing pretty well, they were they were trending in the right direction, and and certainly this is a shock. So we didn't talk about that prior to the prior to the Jets game, but I know I know we're going to talk about it a lot now. Yeah, and I mean, the one thing that. I look at when I see Flores as coach, I'm almost saying, boy, of the, of the disciples of Bill Belichick, he's someone that's probably closest to Bill Belichick in terms of his ability to adapt in the running game. They're using, you know, Miles Gaskin as a running back some games. They were doing other things, his, his ability to change. Do you see, you know, talking to Flores, what did you get a sense of, of his, you know, style in terms of how he approaches these games? Yeah, and even going back to last year when I had the Dolphins a couple of times and came on your show and we talked about Flores. I mean, I've been a big fan of his since I met him for the first time last year. I think he's a has a really good sense of how to motivate his players. I think the players want to get up for him and reward him by playing hard. And you know, I think that he's got this. Um, he, I think he had this stereotype of just being a disciplinarian, but I think when you get to know him. Uh, he just wants the guys to work hard and respect each other, respect the opponent, and he's not opposed to having fun or laughing, which is, you know, I think a lot of people from the Belichick tree get labeled as, you know, these, these guys that don't have much of a personality or, or whatnot, and that's not the case at all with Brian. I mean, he, he's a hardworking guy. He expects the same from his players, but to me, he seems like a, a fun guy to play for. And, you know, in terms of this decision with Tua, there's nobody that knows the locker room better than him. Um, and, and nobody knows that the sense of the organization and the direction they want to go better than him. And this is what he felt would be best, not only for the short term, but, but probably an eye on the long term here to get to us some, you know, some games and, and some climates that, you know, are going to be tough and have some pressure as they try to make a playoff push. And, 
And, you know, who are we to say, hey, he's making the wrong mistake? I mean, it's obviously fun for Sports Talk Radio and for us to, to kind of question it or not question it. But he's the one that's in there, and he knows better than all of us. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's surprising because if the Dolphins were at like 1-5 and five and had no shot, but the fact that they were in the mix and now there's that extra wild card, they're 3-3 three and three in a division that seems pretty wide open, um, you know, only one game behind the Bills. The point is, you know, Fitzpatrick had been playing pretty well. I mean, he had you know, some typical, some poor games. But it was just, I just hope in terms of, Fitzpatrick seems to be so popular in the locker room that, that he has the right read, that suddenly it's not going to just, the locker room will fall apart because they put this Tua, put Tua in the game to start. No, I think that's a fair point. I mean, to me, I think a lot of it is the timing of the bye week. I mean, I think we all knew at some point, whether it was this year or next year, there was going to be a changing of the guard. And obviously Flores wants to do that now. And I think that if you are going to make a move like this, it does help to have the extra week of preparation to get to some extra reps with the first team to, to get him, you know, the time that he needs to get ready for the Rams. So, you know, again, I, I was surprised by it. I'm not going to sit here and say I saw it coming because I don't think many people did. And you're right, it could backfire. It, they, it, could ha- it could have a ripple effect for the short term. But I think ultimately, when you're looking at Miami, you're looking at the future. You're looking at the long term. I think if they were to get in the playoffs, that would be a great story and, and certainly would help them for the long term. But ultimately, their job is to get Tua ready to win games in the future. And, and they believe that this is the time to, to start getting his feet wet. And switching the subjects to another young quarterback, I I remember when I watched Herbert for Oregon, I'm like, you know, I'm just not sold on him. And when the Chargers drafted him, I expected, well, we'll clearly sit a whole year. He's not ready to play this year. I saw a lot of interceptions when he was at Oregon. I didn't think his last senior year was that great. But uh, unfortunately with Tyra Taylor, the, the injury, and you just did the uh, Jacksonville Charger game. Uh, so you got to see Herbert. Surpri- I mean, he's probably the biggest surprise I've seen. I mean, he is, looks great. He's throwing a lot of touchdown passes, has, uh, you know, control of the pocket. You saw how well he played in the Kansas City game. Uh, just really impressed with his performance. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yesterday was the first time I saw him in person, and uh, he's got a big arm. I mean, he can really zip it, whether it's over the middle on a 10-yard route or whether you want to throw it 40 yards down the field. I mean, he can make every throw. And, and, and you also said composure and poise. I mean, he has all of that. And I think that when you talk to some of his teammates, and we spoke to Keenan Allen last week, I mean, there's so many ways that he's not a rookie. I mean, he's only that was just his fifth start. But I think the sense is that this guy's already been there for a while. And I think that's a really key attribute to have for, uh, for a quarterback, especially so young. So there's a lot to like with Herbert. I mean, he's a quiet guy, and I think over time that, that he'll come out a little bit of a shell and, and, and be a little bit more vocal, but, but, but it's working for him right now. And you know, I think they have a lot to be excited about uh, if you're a Chargers fan. He, he appears to me to be the real deal. And then to turn to the Jets, I know you've, I think you've done the Jets twice this year. Um, it just seems to be a situation that is just a mess. I mean, when you have a game when Frank Gore and Joe Flacco are playing, you're like, is this the seniors NFL? Is this the real, like, is it the champions, you know, golf? And in question, and Andrew Gates were, you know, were, Adam Gates were, were, were familiar with him down here in Miami. It's just not, it's just nothing seems to be working out in, in the Jets. And, and the season still has a lot of games left. And you're wondering how they're going to get through it. And, what the future but you feel bad because like I think even my friends that are critical of Darnell says I'm not totally sold that he is not going to make in the NFL but I guess that question is how he's going to survive this rest of the year and will he be a Jets quarterback next year 
Yeah, you're right. I've had him twice, and, and uh, it's just a really tough go right now all the way around. I mean, I think ultimately there's just not a ton of, you know, talent right there on the roster right now. I mean, there's still the guys that are young, and, you know, they obviously had some roster turnover, and there's just not much to work with right now. And, and obviously I think that affects Darnold. I mean, you can't say that he's getting all the protection he needs, that he has all the weapons. Now, some of that's because of injury, too, so it's not all on, you know, the, the roster construction. But, I mean, this is a messy situation. It goes back to when Mike McCagnin did the draft, hired – signed the free agents, hired Adam Gase, and then a couple months later he was let go. And, and then they brought in Joe Douglas. So their GM doesn't have the coach he picked, doesn't have the players he drafted, doesn't have the free agency drafted. So it's going to take some time to really build this back up. You know, Obviously the question becomes if they do get the number one pick, and it's really I, – I don't think you can trade out of Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I think you have to take him, and obviously that would make Darnold expendable. Uh, maybe that's best for both both situations, both parties, to to get Lawrence, to, to give Darnold a fresh start, and to try to start building this organization up again, because right now they got a long way to go. We're talking to Andrew Catalan, who is uh, the CBS uh, play-by-play announcer for the NFL, uh, one of the top, uh, one of the four or five teams that does the NFL, so you might hear him any any game. Uh, this week, I guess you're doing the, you said the Lions-Colts game? Um, but, Correct. Okay. So, um, the point you did the Ravens. Uh, I saw the Ravens Washington game right after the Ravens had lost, and I'm excited, of course, about the Ravens because the Steelers play them this week, and they're going to be a monumental clash. But what is it with this Ravens team? I mean, you would, I thought they had. You know, it seems like there's they just have problems with the Chiefs. You watched that game, you studied them, and you talked to them after that game. So what's the feeling? I mean, it seems like if the Ravens win every one of their games the rest of the year by 30, 40 points, they still have the the, the problems they had with Tennessee last year and their inability now two years in a row to beat the Chiefs. Yeah, well, I went back and watched that Monday night game against Kansas City, and, and honestly, Ira, I don't, I don't know what team would have beat KC that night. I mean, look, the Ravens just weren't going to win that game. I don't think anybody was going to win that game. And obviously, you're not going to get that same Chiefs effort every week. I mean, even yesterday in Denver in the snow, it's not like they lit it up. They got special teams touchdown, a pick six. I mean, they just had a, some things go their way. But their offense, that Monday night game in Baltimore – I mean, it was just unstoppable. So, you know, I think the Ravens realize they're going to have questions the rest of the year about that game and about seeing Kansas City again. They've had their number the last couple of years. But to me, it doesn't take away how solid of a foundation they have, how they continue to grow offensively with Lamar Jackson. I, I, now they got Unique Ngakwe in a trade, re-pairing uh, him with Calais Campbell. They were teammates in Jacksonville. You know, and John Harbaugh, to me, is still one of the best coaches in the NFL. So, you know, I think they're going to be a team that's going to make a deep run. Ultimately, you're probably right. They might see Kansas City again, but, you know, unless Kansas City duplicates that performance from that Monday in week three, you know, I think it's, I think you can see a much closer game, and the Ravens are certainly capable of winning. <laughs> I Hopefully they don't play. Hopefully the Steelers are the team. That, we got to get you on a Steeler game. That's what I want you to get on. 
But um, and then one of, one other team to talk about is Jacksonville. You've done two of those games, and as someone who drafted James Robinson in my fantasy league, like in the seventh round, I'm certainly very happy with the performance. But you know they play hard. Like you know, I watch their games, and it's like their record doesn't indicate. I think you know they really don't have the talent. These other teams are very young, but it seems like they're in these games. They're playing hard, and you know, and Minshew just tries and tries and tries. And I, you know, every week it's like, oh, they're going to bench him. They're going to bench him. They're going to this. And I just think he, then he comes up with this, you know, three touchdown game. Just like I've started to really like Jacksonville. I just wish they would get over the hump. Like I think they're close, but it seems like it just doesn't happen. Yeah, the effort is not an issue at all. I mean, they play hard. There's just, you know, they've had so many injuries, especially on defense, and all of their depth is just unproven young guys that, you know, weren't necessarily high draft picks. I mean, they just don't have a lot of depth on that team, and they're not built to withstand the injuries they've had, especially on defense. So, you know, I agree with you. They, 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 they're they scrappy. They play hard. They can be fun to watch. They score a lot of points. But the problem has been they've given up at least 30 points in each of their last six games, which has tied an NFL record uh, for a single season. They just can't get off the field. And that was the same issue yesterday in Los Angeles. And a lot of that's because of injuries and, and the poor depth. But ultimately, they are what they are, and they're 1-6, and six and they're – and they're headed in the wrong direction. And uh, they're kind of like the Jets in the sense that they need to kind of build back up. They've lost so many players over the last couple of years, from Jalen Ramsey to Calais Campbell to Ngakwe to A.J. Boye. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And You know, it's going to take some time for them to kind of build it back up again where they were three years ago in the AFC Championship game. Wow. So, you know, that's, again, I just as being down here in South Florida. And then uh, can we cut over to the Tampa team? I know you haven't done the, the Bucks at all, but fun team to watch. I mean, superstars that have, for when you have Fournette, McCoy, Brady, and then you just say, oh, throw, by the way, throw Antonio Brown in. I mean, what, what's your feeling of this team, the Buccaneers? I mean, they are just loaded up. And, and when they had the struggles at the beginning of the year, the Bears game was, but it seems like they're just a team that's just getting it going and, and they're going to be this role. And I, I love personally, they're playing Monday night, uh, against the Giants on Monday night, but I just love watching them play. Yeah, I think an underrated part of this season was the lack of a preseason, especially on a team like that with so many new faces and new pieces led by the quarterback. I just think it's taken time for teams to really gel and start to come together, and that's maybe why they lost a couple of those games early. And I think you can look around the league and point to a lot of teams that did not benefit from the lack of a preseason. So, you know, for Tampa's case, uh, they're finally clicking. They, they have a lot of firepower. They're adding to it, as you pointed out. And, you know, I think this is the team that they kind of envisioned at the beginning of the year. It's just taking some time to get to that point. And NFC is still very competitive. I mean, that, that West division, I mean, you could see every single team in the West make the playoffs with the extra wild card this year. So, you know, I don't think it's by any means going to be a cakewalk, but, it is really fascinating knowing that the Super Bowl is in Tampa and no team has ever played a home Super Bowl game. Maybe this is the year that it happens. A long way to go, but I, I agree with you that there's a lot to like there with the Bucks. And when you talk to the coaches, uh, just in, more in general, and, and coaches and the, and the quarterbacks, the lack of fans at the game, the lack of the crowd noise, I mean, how does it affect, do they bring it up to you? Do they mention the effect it has, positive, negative, or whatever, the fact that they can you know, steer their plays better in, when, they're, when they're going to opposing stadiums? But what does the, what's their feeling about, you know, this is the first time, I'm sure these coaches have ever coached with, you know, no fans in a game. 
Yeah, we, we certainly asked a lot about it early in the season. We've kind of got away from it now because I think people are starting to get used to it. But, you know, the most common response was is that when you're playing or coaching, you're in such a zone that you don't really think about the outside noise. You don't really, you know, coaches aren't, like, thinking what the fans are doing and the players are, you know, just thinking about the play and whatnot. So, you know, it's definitely strange. And for me, from a broadcasting perspective, the first couple of weeks were really bizarre just having nobody – you know, in the stands, but I think everyone's kind of gotten used to it and uh, it's different. And, you know, quarterbacks have said they've, you know, whispered a little more in the huddle when they're calling the play. So there's no keywords that the other team, you know, has to hear when, of course, typically with any crowd, you know, you wouldn't hear that. So I think there's little nuances that that are kind of affecting it. But for the most part, it's really not become a big deal. Obviously, everyone would rather have fans there. But in the situation we're in, this is just the way it's got to be. Well, I appreciate you, Andrew. You've been on the show this like third, third or fourth time. I really appreciate every time you come in. The insight you give is amazing. So once again, thanks a lot for coming on Ira and Sports, and and good luck to this weekend between uh, you know for your game the Colts and and the Lions. That I mean that's a it's a must win for both of those teams to stay in the playoff race. So and the Lions had that big win last weekend. So it's gonna be an exciting game for that game. Yeah, looking forward to it. Colts are four and two. Lions had that last second win against Atlanta. So. Uh, you know, with the extra wild card this year, you know, any, you know, you're really not out of it for, for a little bit while longer. So I appreciate it, Ira. Thanks for having me on, and I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Great stuff, as always, from Andrew Catalan here on Ira on Sports. He is just amazing. Luckily, we get to pick his brain every couple of months here. Um, So, Ira, we just got about 10 minutes left, 748, True Oldies Channel. Um, You want to do a couple more football games? You want get, to get on with this? Because we're running out of time. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do two more games, and then we'll move to some college, and then we'll hit the UFC and golf. Yeah, so um, Detroit, he just mentioned that Detroit and Atlanta game. Atlanta just finds ways to lose. It's it's just a little bit. It's almost ridiculous at this point, Ira. I think Atlanta should give a textbook, and they could have different coaches, different general managers. It seems like they should give a textbook on like how to lose. They have lost games this year. I mean, they lost on an onside kicks. They've lost <laughs> with leads. Up. I mean, they're the only team in history to have blow like three touchdown leads in the mm-hmm. fourth quarter in the same season. Uh, and then this game has has to be. The most ridiculous because they had the game won. They had it won. I mean, it was it was, it was the point was at the end of the game they were uh, they got the ball with three minutes to go. They got first to goal on the ten yard line. They're they're down sixteen fourteen. So they just need a field goal. Yeah. So they just need like now a chip shot twenty yard field goal. They're trying to position the ball for field goal. Gurley, Todd Gurley gets goes through the line, gets tripped, and he knows that he's not supposed to score. score he's touchdown. done it plenty of times. Yes, he's done it, and he tripped into the end zone. <laughs> so they score the touchdown. Now they up, they're up. They were up by 20, uh, 22-16. Mm-hmm. And but of course they gave uh, Detroit a chance to come down. And then on the last play of the game, Staff, you knew that Detroit was going to somehow win. This. Oh, Stafford to TJ Hawkinson with no time left, an amazing play. Of course that happened the day before in the Penn State game, where you did, you know, you're, you don't want to be up the last thing in life I think is you want to do is be up eight points at the end of a game or up like six or points but all that Gurley had to do was instead of going the end zone was just to fall on the ground let the time run down because uh, Detroit was out of timeouts they would have been able to wait you know kick the field goal at the end of the game with no time left and win the game and they were unable to do that so another Atlanta falls to one and six and as Andrew said Detroit's at three and three yeah um so <laughs> Ira I was a little bit on the fence about Tampa Bay I mean of course they got Tom Brady they got a lot of skill players got a good defense but I wasn't completely sold 
I think after yesterday, that kind of cemented that, wow, this is a real team in the NFC. And they're going to get a little support as Antonio Brown is joining the fold. And I don't know if he's going to be a good fit, but he's definitely talented. I mean, Tampa is so much fun to watch. Like, I love football, and I have Godwin on my team, Chris Godwin, but they have so many wide receivers, and then you put Antonio Brown on this team. I don't know how you're going to guard And then Gronkowski, the first couple games, he's like, well, he's, he's not Gronkowski. It's the old Gronkowski. You know, he's not. He's not. He's, he's a past his prime. He's just running around there. He was and then, good. And then you see him in this last game. He was Gronkowski. He's catching touchdown balls. He's caught like five passes for 80 yards. And then you have everything. And then you have Brady just told 33 for 45, 316 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, zero sacks. You have a good defense. And then you put Antonio Brown on this team. And now I know Bruce Arians said, I don't want to bring Antonio Brown in. I've been the most critical person of Antonio Brown. But it seems like he's criticized every person on earth. There's not a person that Antonio Brown's criticized except for one, Tom Brady. And that's the one. And, and like Aaron's goes, well, Tom was not the reason why we're bringing him in. Tom is clearly the reason why. <laughs> and I just think this offense is going to be unstoppable with Brady and Brown and Godwin and Evans. Even there's like there's Scotty Miller. Scotty right? Miller. They've got players. And then man. you have like, it's like Ronald Jones, you know, he's running and he's, he's better this year than he's ever been. And then you bring Leonard Fournette in the game. It's like out of nowhere. They have this all-star team of players that are not that past their prime. And you have Brady running it and it, it and, and they, their defense, again, their defense is playing good and they went against a team that the Raiders are tough. I mean, they hung in this game and they're playing, but they can't, you know, it's like, it seems like they're having this tough luck game, but I just like Tampa and we're going to see them next Monday night against the Giants. Um, the whole world will get to see Tampa, but boy, what a fun team to watch. And as, as the Patriots and Belichick just fall apart and then you see what's happening in Tampa. I mean, Brady might have the last laugh. Now, Brady can't play till he's 50, so eventually Belichick <laughs> will probably win another Super Bowl in the next five years. But Brady, at least this year, could have the last laugh. Let's go to NCAA 752 here on Ira on Sports. Um, so we got to see uh, your Big Ten back in action, Ira, and Penn State took on Indiana. I, we can go through the entire game, which I'd like to talk to you about, which I think Penn State played terrible. They were down 17-7, and Sean Clifford just... Bad interception after bad interception. Penn State is ranked seventh or eighth, which no one you know, understands why teams are ranked when you haven't seen them play yeah. in, in months. Micah Parsons, who is going to be a top five pick in the NFL draft, is not playing because of he wanted to sit out this year. He's sitting out. Journey Brown, their best running back from last year, who was in Cotton Bowl, was the, the MVP of the Cotton Bowl. He's not playing. So you're missing a lot of the parts on this team. But it was just they play terrible. But at the end of the game, they're they're ahead uh, 21-20. And Indiana gets the ball. And Shaka Tony is out of the movies. He has three straight, well, two really sacks. And then another one, I'll give him the sack anyway. Three straight sacks in the end of quarterback. So then on the fourth down, they go on their own 21-yard line. And their quarterback throws interception. So Penn State gets the ball on their, they return it back to the 14-yard line with 147 left. Indiana has one timeout. All Penn State has to do is go in the victory formation because if you the shock the play clock goes forty seconds, it would have been close with the one timeout, but it been right there. Yeah. The worst case scenario, worst case scenario, Indy gets a ball with like one second left in the game. So what does Penn State do? They run a play. Like you didn't have to run a play. Like this was not Atlanta. Even they ran a play, and Journey Brown, or not Journey Brown, uh, Devin Ford runs in a touchdown. I was watching it with my mom. They go, "Oh, eight point lead is better than a one point lead." I'm like, "No, it's not," <laughs> because then you give Indiana a chance to come down and score, and it's like, "Oh, what?" Were, but they didn't even have to run a play. Just they could, should have gone in victory formation. They've done a two plays on the third play. They've probably been hugging. They're, you know, they come off the bench. The everybody shakes their hands. 
the game would have been over. But instead, you give Indiana a chance to come down there, score, get the two-point conversion, goes into overtime, and then Penn State scored the first time with the touchdown overtime, and then Indiana had a chance. So Indiana, not only did they score in overtime, then they went, and they went for two. <laughs> you know, they didn't want to tie. They're yeah. like, we're so lucky with the game. And their quarterback, oh, what a play. He reached there just like an inch away, and the ball, they, it was reviewed for, I think, 15 minutes, but it was called that it was a touchdown because it just, I thought it was short. I thought it was a millimeter short, but they called it a touchdown on the field. And when you see that, they say it's a touchdown on the field, it's hard to reverse it. And I agree, it would have been hard to reverse it. Mm-hmm. But I thought he was a little short from that, and Penn State would have won. But it, it's interesting to see a team go for two at the end of the, you know, in the first time of the overtime when you don't even have to go for two. Um, what are uh, some other college games you want to focus on? I know Ohio State really drubbed Nebraska. Beat Nebraska, Justin Fields, 20 for 21, 276 yards, two touchdowns. Ohio State, it's like, you know, everyone thought they're so great, they're so amazing. They really put it out, you know, they had to go and show that they were great. I think Michigan's win over Minnesota, 49 to 24. Uh, Michigan uh, was just Joe Milton at quarterback. I mean, you think how Michigan's been struggling in offense year after year after year after year. They get criticized. We had Braylon Edwards on our show who said, I can't understand this team without an offense. And Minnesota had Tanner Morgan back, their great quarterback, and Rashard Bateman, who's going to be a first round draft pick in the NFL. And they beat Minnesota and they beat them bad to 49 24. Big win for Michigan. Uh, Wisconsin looked great Friday night, which they normally always do. Wisconsin's the masters at beating up these teams. Graham Mertz is the they really never have great quarterbacks in Wisconsin, but Mertz is one of the top quarterbacks in the country, freshman coming in. He was 20 for 21, five touchdowns, but then he tested positive for COVID, might miss the next three games because that's the rules they have in the, in, the, in the league. And the big Big Ten upset was Rutgers, who hasn't won in 21 games in the Big Ten. They hired Greg Schiano back as their coach. Remember, Greg Schiano coached for Rutgers, mm-hmm. then went to Tampa, then bounced around, then he's back at Rutgers, and they beat Michigan State uh, at Michigan State 38-27. Next week in the Big Ten, Ohio State at Penn State, huge monster of a game, and Michigan State at Michigan. In the SEC, we saw Alabama uh, crush the Tennessee Volunteers. Yeah, Alabama easily went over 48-17, and I feel terrible for Jaron Waddle, their uh, star wide receiver, one of the most exciting players, opening kickoff breaks his ankle. Yeah. And they have a lot of other wide receivers, but I think, look, it's not going to hurt them in winning, going to the playoffs, but maybe against Clemson, that's a player they're going to miss. LSU's finally back. I mean, they Miles Brennan, their star quarterback, was hurt, so he couldn't play, but TJ Finley came in there, and they killed South Carolina 52-24. And Auburn has this win. Bo Nix, who is... You know, every game it seems Auburn's in. There's some crazy ending in the game, but he, he scored two touchdowns at the end of the game, and they beat Mississippi 35-28. Lane Kiffin's off to now to a 1-4 and four start. You know, it's like they had that first big win of the season, and now he's lost four straight. Uh, next week, LSU at Auburn on CBS on uh, 3.30, and Mississippi State's at Bama and Missouri. Finally, Florida's back playing. They've been off two weeks. Missouri's at Florida. Um, in the ACC, we saw Clemson face off against Syracuse, and it wasn't close. No, Clemson totally blew out Syracuse. You know, I say totally blew out because they won by 26. And then they asked Dabba Sweeney at the game. They go, well, the game was a little closer. I'm like, and Sweeney goes, I won by, we won by 26 points. We, you know, we had the dominant game. But uh, it's just like Clemson has Boston College, Florida State, Pitt, and Virginia Tech blow everyone out. In two weeks, they play at Notre Dame. That's going to be a, that's going to be a good game because Notre Dame looked great against Pitt. They won 45 to three. Um, and then we got our two local, you know, Miami, Virginia. Miami wins a game, 1914. The exciting thing about that game was Mike Harley, they, they coach, you know, they called him out and said, Manny Diaz said, I have no wide receivers on my team. We need a wide receiver. So they had 10 wide receivers listed as starters. Finally, Mike Harley, a senior, comes out there and he catches 10 balls, which was, a, was great, you know, for them. And Derek King had 322 yards, but five sacks. 
Miami has got to stop not getting that. You know, the sacks are killing them and the turnovers and the mistakes they have. But they still hung on to beat Virginia. But Virginia's one and four. They're not really like they were last year. But five and one is five and one. So Miami should be happy. But Florida State, I mean, after that big win over North Carolina, to come in and get blown out by Louisville, 48 to 16. Louisville is not a good team. Just a bad, bad, bad loss for them. So next week, Miami and Florida State are both off. And uh, Clemson plays Boston College and Notre Dame at Georgia Tech. Previously, then a week after that, that'll be the big game between Clemson and Notre Dame. Let's talk a little UFC. A little USC. Uh, how about a lot USC? Khabib, who is the number one pound for pound, considered maybe if probably the greatest UFC fighter of all time, was against Justin Gaethje, who was number eight pound for pound. Khabib was twenty nine and zero. Um, this was talked about and talked about. It was fun. It was on a on a Saturday afternoon, not at night. Um, they were both ranked one and two in lightweights. Uh, you remember Gaethje beat uh, Tony Ferguson uh, a couple of months ago and won the interim championship. It's Fight Island, no fans. Um, Khabib's father had passed away. Um, there was some rumors that this could be his last fight, but there was no, he didn't, had made no announcements. But we found out later that his mother told him not to fight. Yeah. He also broke his foot <clears throat> three weeks before the fight. And uh, round one starts. Gaethje is the striker. Gaethje wants to kick. He wants to punch. He doesn't want to wrestle. And that first round, Gaethje, I just felt like was like you know grasping him. He was got some good kicks in, but it looks like Khabib was going to show. Look, I can. I'm not just known as a wrestler. I can out outstrike you too. And so they were. They really weren't on the ground at all. He made one one stro- you know one attempt to take him down. But with 45 seconds to go, Khabib tackled Gaethje, took him down, put him in arm bar, and I thought he won that first round. And but two of the judges gave uh, it to uh, to Gaethje. I was shocked they gave it to him. It's like the only the second round that uh, Khabib has ever lost, let alone a fight. He's never lost a fight. But in the second round, Gaethje got some good leg kicks in and Khabib just went and he put him in this thing called um, a triangle choke. And yeah. triangle choke is with you use your, your, you're on your back and you're using your two knees and take the other person's arm and you just close it so much that the person passes just passes out. And I was like researching the triangle choke. <laughs> and how about in Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson used that triangle choke on Gary Boosie in that character and it's been used in Game of Thrones and Paul Walker did it on Vin, Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. <laughs> so I'm like, what's his triangle chokehold? And he, it knocks him out. And Gaethje, but after the fight, then Khabib takes his gloves off, says, I'm out. My, it's my last fight. I'm never going to fight again. This is it. I'm finished. I'm known as the, the, you know, the greatest fighter in the world. That's all I wanted to know. I'm done fighting. Let's uh, move on to golf because uh, I've been saying for a long time, Patrick Cantlay is extremely underrated. He got himself a nice win. It was a good win because he was he was behind, you know, it's not like he was passing a no-names. He has in front of you, you're in third place, and in front of you in the final round is Justin Thomas and John Rahm. And he's four strokes behind at one point, but he came and took the lead. And then he, he then it, <laughs> a bogeyed seven, he bogeyed 16, which is the par five. And then, but Rahm and Thomas both had chances, and they weren't able to uh, to close it out in terms of Rahm had, Rahm was one stroke behind, and he was putting for birdie on 17 and 18, a 17-footer and like a 12-footer. He missed both of putts uh so they, and he tied and thomas then birdied uh 18 so because of that they was like a two-way tie for second kid only one and that kept uh dj dustin johnson number one in the world so it was actually dustin johnson stayed number one but rom and thomas for the second but it was a big win for canelay who's a, one of the top 10 golfers but doesn't seem to win tournaments so mm-hmm. it was nice for him and uh this is the first like the like the big tournament before the masters which in two weeks and the one thing i wanted to mention was that bubba watson who he finished in fourth place at 19 under. And Bubba Watson is 
40 to 1 at the Masters. And if you talk about a live bet, and I might put some money on this one, but he's won the Masters twice and he wins these tournaments like at Genesis. Like he'll go into these tournaments and not play. Like you're like, he's playing terrible, but he has certain tournaments that he's won. I think he's won like three tournaments uh, more than two times. And one of them is, of course, the Masters at 40 to 1 and he's just playing well. Like he's a bet at 40 to You should get that. And, and the odds like for the Masters in two weeks, Bryson 7 to 1, Rory 10 to 1, DJ 11 to 1, Rom 12 to 1. Justin Thomas, 14 to 1. Brooks Kepka, 20 to 1. Brooks Kepka, I'm telling yeah. that. And Tigers, 22 to 1. I mean, you just got to be excited to see what's going to happen. I mean, they, next week, there's not really a tournament. And then in two weeks is the Houston Open. And some people are talking about playing that and going to the Masters. I don't think Tiger said I might play that. He'll never play a tournament before the Masters. <laughs> no, I, I and I think so. I mean, I'm just so excited for two weeks from now for the Masters. And just real quick, auto racing. Um, well, I the NASCAR race has been pushed back now two days. There's only three races left. The Texas race so without rain run tomorrow and then they play martinsville and phoenix so they're down to the final playoffs but the uh portuguese grand prix i love watching formula one i'm getting so much into that and lewis hamilton had won for the 92nd time in formula one which broke michael schumacher's record schumacher retired in 2006 and uh, uh 2006 with his uh, 91 wins and, and people said oh, hamilton had no shot this is never gonna he would never be his record is not gonna be broken because when he retired uh vettel had like 50 wins so he was almost double number two and the fact that Hamilton started like the year after him and then he's able then to uh, break the record is just simply amazing and I love watching Formula like the racing I'm just getting into the whole thing which I've not been a big Formula fan but Hamilton is fun to watch and how he drives and it's only like the, the, they do it perfectly it's an hour and a half on a road course and uh, very very fun and, and it was a big win and he's the greatest race car driver of all time before we close it out Stan Van Gundy's got a new job <laughs> crazy for the, for the, boy the Van Gundy's and I just hope that Jeff Van Gundy gets a job too so I don't have to listen to him <laughs> <laughs> but he got a job with the Pelicans coaching Zion Williamson. So it's not just he just got a job, but I think the Pelicans are this interesting job in terms of they have so much talent, so many players. Remember Stan Van Gundy from Miami and the fact that he would not put Dwayne Wade in the game when Dwayne Wade is a superstar player and you don't have Dwayne Wade in the last few minutes of a basketball game, probably the last time that ever happened, yeah. you know, in like 100 years. So, but anyway, Stan Van Gundy now is going to be coaching the Pelicans. What, what are we doing this week, guy? Um, World Series Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, we got um, hopefully the, <laughs> Tuesday, maybe Wednesday the World Series, and then Tuesday at game uh, game seven will be very exciting. And then we got some great, you know, just some good football games for for myself. Think, could you imagine that if I was if there was no COVID, I'd be at Penn State. Ohio State at Happy Valley, and then Steelers-Ravens. I mean, I could have seen Steelers-Ravens yeah. at Penn State-Ohio State. Back to I me, mean, it's going to be such an exciting weekend for football, and I think that's what we're getting. I mean, this is sort of now we're going to have all the other sports are starting to end, and it's just going to be this period of time where it's just going to be football all the time. And it's fun, though, because they're going to play Monday Night Football, Thursday Night Football, and then you're going to get the colleges now playing. The slate on Fridays are going to be some really good games, mm-hmm. so you betters are going to have games Monday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to bet. And so just Tuesday and Wednesday are the only days you have off <laughs> we are out of time andrew catalan thanks so much for popping by on behalf of ira i'm mike let's talk next monday night it's iron sports